Episode 18. On this episode, Byron Lopez discusses platformism as part of our anarchism series. Also, Tinzo Shabbat and I talk about John McCain's legacy. My name is Brandon Payton Carrillo. And you know what? I'm ready to get started. How about you guys? So here today we're talking about platformism. Yes. Uh, much like literally fucking everything in the, the anarchist milieu, uh, platformism can cause a hell of a lot of uh, arguments and angry tweets. Well, you know what? I love angry tweets. So let's go for it. So what is this? Uh, what is platformism about? Um, well, platformism is a specific type of organization advocated by certain anarchists. Um, it, this all came about when, I don't know if you heard of this little thing called the Russian Civil War, mm-hmm. uh, where, you know, there were the Red Army and then the White Army. Uh, well, there was also the Black Army, um, and anarchists were very heavily influential in the events. I mean, it was the anarchists who were on the front line of storming the Winter Palace. Um, it was the anarchists who did, if anything, risk the most um, bodily harm. And were rewarded by uh, being purged uh, and being sent to prison uh, and not being allowed to organize publicly. Um, so kind of out of – and then eventually they all moved to the Ukraine. You know, there was a black army. There was Ethnic Makhno. There was the free territory of Ukraine. And, that, and then that got wiped out by Trotsky um, you know, with extreme prejudice. So they all moved to Paris because Paris was kind of where you would go when you know your, your revolution failed. It was kind of a – Paris and Chicago were kind of the, the go-to places where failed revolutionaries would go. And from there, they uh, a bunch of these uh, Ukrainian and Russian anarchists got together. So these anarchists got together um, in Paris and created this group called the Group of Russian Anarchists Abroad. It was very, very straightforward. Um, and, they, and in 1926, they proposed this new kind of document called the, uh, the Organizational Platform of the General Union of Anarchists or the platform, as it would be later called. And it created this whole hullabaloo amongst the left, um, and uh, we've been fighting about it ever since. But primarily, it's, like, I hate to use the term, uh, but we kind of, like, even platformists kind of jokingly call it uh, the, you know, the the closest we got to a Leninist version of anarchism. <gasps> Closest we got to a Leninist version of anarchism. So yeah, the, the closest we got to like a very, very tightly structured, you know, like uh, very like everyone has the same ideas um, kind of structure of an organization. 
So tell me about this structure. All right. So platformist organizations are are essentially, you know, in order to be considered a platformist organization, you've got to advocate for four main things. Um, tactical unity, theoretical unity, collective responsibility, and federalism. Um, now, tactical unity is basically um, kind of your, your organization has an agreement to only do, like, certain tactics. Like, they, they know what to do. Uh, this is specifically to, like, you know, they do direct action, they do union organizing, and then they do, um, you know, X, Y, and, you know, X, y and Z. Uh, but that, that's the only things they do. Um, this is specifically so to not create any circumstances where people are stepping on each, on each other's toes or people are doing tactics that are like are kind of opposing each other, kind of like, you know, doing revolutionary stuff, but also advocating for electoralism. Like the, the two kind of go against each other and you ultimately have to pick one. Um, and the anarchists almost always pick the revolutionary stuff. Um, then you move on to theoretical unity. This is the, like, this is where a lot of the, kind of techie stuff comes from um, where it's like, okay, we are, we have to be kind of united in our theoretical look of the world, um, which means usually, usually just means everyone, everyone in it has to be um, an anarcho-communist or an anarcho-cynicalist um, and kind of agree to a core set of theoretical pittings. Um, and if you don't agree with them, then you can kind then they kindly show you the door. Um, this is specifically to kind of, because something that has happened to anarchist organizations that this group kind of noticed was um, everyone's kind of everywhere when it comes to anarchism. There's like individualists, there's neutralists, there's cynicalists, there's commun- like anarcho-communists, and then there's like you know egoist anarchism, and they're they're kind of running around everywhere, and no one knows what the fuck they're doing um, in in these organizations. So they're like, okay, everyone. For example, uh, Black Rose Federation. Uh, which is a U.S. platformist group is like okay, we're all anarcho-communists. Like, like you know, they had a, a you know they had an argument, uh, they voted, and it's like okay, this is what we are. This these are the tenets that we believe in in order to just be allowed in. Um, and then you move on to collective responsibility, where it's kind of the it kind of rejects the kind of individualism that um, was kind of. Big in anarchism, especially before the Russian Revolution, where propaganda of the deed, as we discussed in a previous episode, was very popular, but also incredibly individualistic and very, I guess I could call it, give a negative view of many people to uh, anarchism. Mm-hmm. And they're like, okay, no, we can't just go around doing shit like on our own. We can't go lone wolf this shit. Um, in their view, like you know, revolutionary life is inherently collective, and we should, you know, and we should be responsible to everyone. So. Everyone is responsible to everyone else. Um, so this is kind of a lot, again where a lot of the tanky, like anarcho tanky monomer gets put on uh, platformists. Uh-huh. And lastly, the last one is federalism, which, um, like, while they may be highly structured and very tightly organized, it doesn't mean they're not like centralists. Um, they do believe in like federalism and federation, um, where you know it's more of a matter of it's less a matter of like disciplining organizations and more saying okay like this is is what required to be in and when once you're in um you can leave if you want like if if if, you know something changes to the platform uh you know if like it goes from anarcho-communist anarcho-syndicalist and you're an anarcho-communist group and you don't want to change with them fine 
then you, you are allowed to leave and you know do your own thing. Uh, this is very much where the federalism comes in, and where it still can be called anarchism. Okay, so this sounds to me like a good idea. Where is the controversy? The controversy is in uh, when it was public, when you know Nestor Makhno and all the other uh, anarchists from what was previously the Russian Empire, like published it. It caused a lot of controversy. I mean, like every, like all the who's who's of of anarchism uh, kind of wrote like you know scathing critiques about it, from you know Enrico Malatesta to Alexander Berkman uh, to Emma Goldman to. Uh, to vote Volin and uh, you know Alexander Skirda, like everybody was very much um, kind of like, what the fuck is this shit? This is this looks like tanky shit, um, but like you know in 1926 language. Um, <laughs> Just a few <laughs> um, more words. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, whatever the word for tanky was uh, at the time. So, um, you know, it, it, mainly because of the fact that it was, it, you know, these. Or this organization that was being pitched at the time was like – it was very you know, very tightly organized, very you know, either you're with us or you're not, um, very against the kind of ideological pluralism that's very prominent in anarchism mm-hmm. um, was not advocated for at all. It was like, no, you – like we all have to be one thing um, or else we're going to lose the next revolution like we did the last one. Like that was what was that – what, that was what the group of Russian anarchists abroad – you know, said, and the, you know, everyone else was like, no, we need to be big tent. In fact, um, in response to the platform, um, a group of anarchists, a group of fetch anarchists, um, mainly, um, mainly advocated by Bolin, uh, who was a French anarchist, mm-hmm. um, advocated something called a kind of alternative called synthesis anarchism or anarchism without attributes, um, which kind of proposes a kind of big tent anarchism where everybody of all different anarchist types, except NCOMs, um, are allowed in, and you know we all are generally working towards a, a single direction. Um, you know, we might be mutualists, we might be, you know, syndicalists, we might be communists, we might be uh, individualists, but generally we are moving in the same direction, and we can work with one another. Um, so that's where the the big debate always comes up with, with between the anarch- the platformists and the synthesists. So. Where's that debate at now in these days? Who won? Who lost? Or is it kind of a tie and people are just like, whatever, don't give a fuck anymore, and you just do what you do? Um, I would say none of them won <laughs> because um, I don't know if you know this certainly, but like after 1968, um, anarchism has kind of been on kind of on a down low. It's kind of propped up recently with you know Antifa becoming weird public and you know and, and all that stuff. But for the most part, um, there are. Like there aren't really any big tent anarchist organizations. Um, well, th- there is, but they're very small uh, compared to all the other groups, all the other socialist groups. Um, there is, you know, there's, you know, uh, there is a platformist group in the U.S. Black Rose Anarchist Federation, um, but they have like 600 members, I think, like probably, like, definitely under a thousand members. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, like like I said before, synthesis anarchism is kind of nowhere to be seen um you can kind of kind of advocate kind of call for it in the ls in the libertarian socialist caucus in dsa 
but that's like within the DSA, which is a whole other fucking issue. Yeah. Um. Um. So most, I, I would say most anarchists are probably in what we would call affinity groups, where it's more based on circumstance and kind of who you know rather than any real ideological underpinnings. So it's not like you're a big tent anarchist or you're a platformist. Um, it's more about just who the fuck is around you at the current time, whether or not you work well with them, and that's about literally it. Like that's that's as far as it really goes. Um, so again, like, like I said before, it's no none of them really won. <laughs> mm. okay. Kind of sad, but that's how you go. Yeah, that's how it shakes out sometimes. Would you say the platformist movement overall is this kind of a a dead movement, or is it? I in the U.S. I would not say it's a dead movement because um, I mean Black Rose is still around and they are kind of growing and they do and they do do stuff. Um, but again, like there is no. I mean, I mean they're doing better than the synthesis anarchists, to be honest, because um, you know there is no real synthesis organization in the U.S. that I know of. That's like explicitly anarchist. Um, so I, I guess in the U.S., uh, black, you know, the platformers won, but it's uh, it's very pyrrhic victory. Well, thank you for that wonderful insight on platforming. You're welcome. Hey, Brandon. I think it's time we talk about John McCain's legacy. That's, uh, yeah, I think that's something we need to be talking about. Yeah, now that he's, you know, dead and gone, uh-huh. um, and we've lived through his burial, and there was a lot of symbolism about what he stood for and, you know, the, the molehills that he died upon. And his the causes that he fought, but I think, I think a lot of us really miss certain aspects of his legacy. And I just wanted to ask you, what is John McCain's legacy in regards to people of color? It should be uh, he was an enemy of of people of color, like his entire career. Like we've been fodder for his his climbing the political uh, ladder his entire life, like starting with, you know, the Vietnam War, where it was killing innocent people of color um, because he did kill civilians um, when he was out there. And that's something that we need to really remember. And then, you know, he never saw a piece of legislation that uh, harmed people of color he didn't like. Um, You know, he opposed celebrating Martin Luther King's birthday as a national holiday. Um, So that's why I think that this kind of love fest for him that happened after his death is like so damaging. And that's why we need to be talking about his legacy because unless, you know, we're loud about this, he's going to be remembered as this compassionate conservative. I think a lot of people forget as of, as recently as 2008, he had a campaign ad that he was hanging out at the border and he was telling some border guard, yeah, we'll build this wall. And mm-hmm. 
What I think is, he doesn't give a fuck about the wall. He doesn't really care about immigrants that much. But whenever it's been politically convenient for him, or I should say been politically inconvenient to where he has to, I would say, um, debase himself, Mm -hmm. he will go that route just to stay in power, to stay elected. Um, I remember back, because we always said back in 2000, oh, well, I'm not a Republican, but if there was one Republican I would vote for or even consider, Uh it was John McCain. And then once he lost that 2000 uh, Republican nomination, all of a sudden we have John McCain in lockstep with fucking W. Bush. Mm -hmm. And just carrying out, just carrying his water. Until mm-hmm. 2008. Oh, now it's time for me to be a maverick again. Yeah, the guy was just very cynical and very savvy of uh, how the media work. Um, and he was just really, a, I mean, he was a good politician. I'll give him that. The policies he supported and uh, pushed were, were awful. But he was good at kind of taking the temperature of the room, figuring out what he had to do, how he could almost piss people off a little bit. Uh, you know, in his own team, but not quite in, or in any kind of substantial manner. Um, but, you know, also like give a offer a branch to the Democrats, you know, rhetorically, not in any kind of substantive, substantive manner. Uh, and he was able to coast on that for his entire career. You know, one thing that I bring up a lot, like anytime he came up in the news was the fact that he um, he was quoted in 2000, 18 years ago. Of saying that he will always refer to Asians as, and I'll just say the, it's the G word, uh, uh, a word that was used quite often in, in the war that he fought in Vietnam. Um, and he's never, you know, in the past, eight, he said 18 years now to to retract that or to say, like, I was wrong. And he, and he refused to. Uh, and this was like one of the arguments that I got into with people Um that really a lot of people really showed themselves and showed who they were around this debate where I'd bring up like, yeah, I don't like the fact that he uses that word. It's a word that's used against people like me, my family. It's a word I've been called my entire life. Um, it's, you know, it's a word just to, you know, dehumanize another human being. That's exactly the reason why they use racial slurs in times of war is to dehumanize the other side. He's never gotten past that. And I would tell people that, and they're like, well, he was a prisoner of war and he was tortured. He has the right to be upset. I'm like, yeah, he has the right to be upset, but he is casting this uh, wide net around all Asians and Asian Americans and refusing to to apologize for any of that. And, you know, obviously, you know, because like, you know, I was saying earlier, he's like a very savvy politician. He never had to, you know, if he has liberals defending that, then why should he even have to? retract any kind of statements like that from the past. Um, and I, you know, I, I felt, you know, personally offended by a lot of people who couldn't even like kind of give me a little credit. It's like, Oh, I even, you know, understand why you're offended. It was just a matter of like, you can't speak ill of war heroes. And then even if you look at his record in the war, the man was no hero. <laughs> and that's, that could be a point that Trump was actually right on. But let me ask you this question about the G word. Mm-hmm. Because um, it is offensive, and uh-huh. you know, if there's a, 
I'm, I'm a firm believer of if there is a particular term that a group that's referring to a specific group and they don't like it, <clears throat> it's not fucking cool. Yeah. So, with that being said, do you think that John McCain was able to get away with that using that word because the Asian uh, population in America has been overlooked or their power as a voting block has been suppressed or what do you think the reason is? It is, you know, Asian Americans uh, occupy an interesting space and uh, whenever, you know, there's often the, the case of, you know, seemingly liberal or open-minded people uh, will bring up the um, the model minority myth uh, whenever we kind of voice our own opinions about something or, or bring up that, you know, something is insulting to us. Um, and that, that comes out a lot during this. When, when I say like, when, when I say like, you know, that offends me that he says that and that it actually has, you know, this is a person who has policy power and that's how he regards an entire race of people. Um, and, you know, he represented Arizona, which is a state that had concentration camps for Japanese Americans. Um, highly offensive. And this man does have power um, over us. Um, so I I do feel like there there's a little bit of that where um, especially liberal folks will like to kind of give and take away um, POC-ness of, of Asian Americans when it, when it suits them. That when it's a matter of something like this, where they want to show how magnanimous they are and um, show their appreciation for John McCain, oh, Asian Americans have it okay. But then like when they want to like explain how they um, can't be racist because they have an Asian friend, you know, that, that comes out too. At the end of the day, what do you think John McCain's legacy should be? His legacy should be, it should be that of um, a political opportunist, a racist, a sexist, um, a misogynist, a classist. You know, we, we need to like really think about when someone makes certain policy decisions as um, a senator that – that actually should be their legacy, not the fact that they were both able to be on Bill Maher and Bill O'Reilly. Like that isn't really doesn't really show the person's character. Like when someone has the power to do something good and they do something bad, that I feel like is what they should be remembered by. And like I understand the folks who say don't speak ill of the dead. Like I, I, I don't necessarily agree with it, but you know I understand where people are coming from when they say that it's a tradition. Um, it's very much ingrained in a lot of people, mm-hmm. but also you could say nothing. And one of the things that I found really shocking were how many people or how many liberals, I should say, um, were going out of their way to talk about how great John McCain is. And then when you bring up things about his legacy that are really awful, they're, that's when they pull out the whole, like, don't speak ill of the dead. Well, maybe we should just say, maybe just don't speak of the dead. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, if it's something that's going to make people recoil so much, um, they can just kind of sit and be like, okay, that person died and let's move on. Uh, I don't see exactly what the liberals and the Democrats have gotten out of finding token Republicans that they like and saying, well, that guy's good. They all need to be like that. We've never gotten anything from that of substance. 
I agree. And I think the only thing that you can remotely say that you get out of that is this idea that, oh, remember that bygone era where politics was clean? And yes, we fought on ideals. Uh And we fought for them. And they were our opposition. But at the end of the day, we could punch out and be friends and hang out. And wasn't that a great, wasn't that a great America? Let's, let's try to work towards that. And the Democrats, by working towards that, is pretty much being republican light mm-hmm. And giving them what they want, acquiescing to their wildest, you know, wet dreams. Uh-huh. And, you know, fever dreams and whatever. And, like, couldn't we be more bipartisan? Couldn't we mm-hmm. work together more? And realistically... John McCain, politically, I'm not going to call him a conservative, <clears throat> unless you could consider, you know, Hillary Clinton a conservative, because <clears throat> they were both fucking hawks. They both, you know, catered to fucking business, and um, none of their policies were particularly good for POCs. <clears throat> so I like the fact that you brought up that comparison too, because. That's exactly what Hillary is as well, a political climber who policy positions are not that even that important. They'll just find a track they can go to like move up to the next level um, or at least attempt to. Um, Also, neither of them are going to be president. So that's something they have in common as well. (laughs) That is true. So if you're being generous, you can say – John McCain's legacy is a mixed bag, but I, I question that a little bit too. And there was also like when people talk about this bygone era where people got along, that was when both of the major parties um, had divisions within themselves. That was like, you know, when the Democrats had, you know, half the party was segregationists mm-hmm. and you know, they found they, they within themselves found a coalition um, you know, at the expense of POCs mostly um, to get things to work together. But then they could reach across the aisle because half the Republicans were virulent racists and the other half were, you know, they had other interests involved. Um, it was a different world. And now both sides are, you know, they, they have their, their, their issues. And it, it seems to me, though, that the current formation of both parties uh, the Republicans care more about winning policies than elections, whereas the Democrats seem to be the, all they care about is winning that election, you know, damn policy. Exactly. And that's why you have people like Hillary Clinton, who is almost undistinguishable from John McCain. <laughs> my, my stomach just turned just a little bit. Yeah, we talked about we we're just we're talking about some couple of the worst people <laughs> in the world. Yeah, yeah. Well, I say, you know what? Fuck it. You know, John McCain's dead. Uh-huh. You know, may he rest in peace or other places, <laughs> if you believe in those kind of things. And um, yeah, let's call it. Let's call it a day on this one. I, I hear you. Thank you. <laughs> Come to the end of another episode. 
But before I let you go, I just want to remind you that our platformism segment is going to be on our Patreon page with the rest of our Anarchism series. So check all that stuff out. Binge listen to it. Have fun. Is at patreon.com backslash movement of color. I'd also like to recommend you to, hey, follow us on Twitter at movement underscore color. My name is Brandon Peyton Carrillo. And with that, I say adios. Hello.